Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. sitting there at the light, and I was like, oh my gosh, and then I was like, so we had to race back home, and uh, I was I was all cool, calm, and collected until that moment, and then all of a sudden, it sent like stress and stuff, so if I seem flustered, please feel free to grace with me that Karen and I are coming back up here, like, trying to make sure I've got everything together, and I felt really good about it, but I'm really excited for us to be doing apologetics this summer, um, and I apologize if today is a little intro heavy. One, I'm an intro person, like, I like information, whether it's useless information about some random animal in South Africa that I'm never ever going to see in my life even in a zoo or you know pertinent things as what comes to the gospel and and what we believe in Um, so I'm going to apologize ahead of time if this is a little heavy Um, there was tons of information it was really funny because Nate and Scott texted me I think it was Friday and they're like hey are you doing okay how's your prep you know are you good and all that sort of stuff and I was like oh yeah I'm feeling really great just finishing up my slides and it's going to be awesome and then I texted them back, and I was like, because uh, there's a couple of different ways that people organize their sermons. Some of them just come up with, like, a, um, an outline, um, and they preach from that. And then there's guys like Scott who just kind of get up here, and they preach straight from the Bible um, because they have everything memorized. And then Nate is uh, does a different direction where he manuscripts, and that's what I was doing this time. I was manuscripting, get up basically word for word, like, what I'm going to say. And I was like, how many pages is your manuscript when you do it? And he's like, oh, I type it in, like, size 14 font, and... It's about 10 to 12 pages, somewhere in there. And I was like, oh, so 23 pages might be a little much. And there was this really long pause. And I can just kind of see Nate, like, on his phone, like, uh, and I was like, I'm just kidding. It's only 18. It's okay. Um, <laughs> but um, so I apologize if it's, if it's heavy. But there's, there's part of the reason for this that, um, that I think apologetics is important is, one, I think as a, as a Christian culture, not necessarily here at Redemption, but as a Christian culture, we look at apologetics as like, you know, Tim Ham, who's like there to refute evolution against everybody outside the church. And there's, you know, people who talk about all, all different sides of it, um, you know, who are trying to prove to non-Christians that Christianity is real. And we almost forget that, I mean, Scott talked about it last week, that apologetics is for us. Apologetics is also how we ground our faith. And that we realize, as Scott said too, that Christianity is not void of rational thinking, um, and, uh, uh, and, and actual critical thinking. You know, it is rational, it is reasonable, it is historical, and therefore it makes it very reasonable faith to believe in. Um, and it's when we have those moments of fact that we know about, we are then able to rely on that because that builds us a solid foundation. Because how many times, I mean, I hope I'm not the only one. Has, has there ever been like nights laying in bed or like quiet times where you're the only one in the car and you're just like, have I been scammed? Is this real? Is Jesus really God? Did he really rise from the dead? And it, you kind of have these like existential moments of like, oh my gosh. And you know what? That's okay. We all have those moments. It is okay to question our faith. It is okay to qu- question scripture. Don't run from those questions. Don't be scared of those questions. They feel scary because they're like life changing. Because if this is a scam, 
it just isn't true that I'm not Jehovah because I'm not born again. But if it's not true, if it's not real, that's life-changing for us as believers, as followers of Jesus. But if we have a firm foundation in what we know is true, then when those emotions, those waves of darkness come through, those waves of doubt and fear happen, what can we rely on? We don't have to, re- we don't have to rely on emotion because what does emotion do? Emotion waves up and down. I mean, even think about it for you guys who have been in either long-term relationships or marriages and stuff. Like, the emotion of love, man, it's really big when you get married or when you first start dating and you get really serious. But then when you get into the ordinary everyday of life of being married, like, that emotion is kind of like, you know, you're committed and stuff still. But you're not questioning that, but that, that emotion feels really big. But you can rely on the fact that you know that your spouse loves you unconditionally. You can rely on the fact that you committed to God and to your spouse and to your family and friends a lifetime of commitment to your spouse. And that is a fact. And that's what allows you to establish when those times get tough, when the finances are hard, when, you know, people in your family are dying, and when money is stressful. When you have this foundation of truth and fact, when those waves of emotion come running through and things are dark, you can settle on that. You can, that's where you can trust in. And the same thing is with our faith. So um, I, I hope I'm not alone in those, those moments of, like, question and fear um, sometimes where we wonder, like, is this it? Is this legit? Are we, are, you know, is this real? Um, and I'm hoping that through these apologetics that we do through today that we're going to talk about the resurrection, that we can give you a foundation or at least start to give you a foundation of true facts that you can rely and trust on um, and when you move through the everyday. Um, you know, like I said, it's okay. It's okay if you, tr- if you have issues with, with struggling and trusting and questioning, but we need to know where to go to for the right answer, um, if possible. So um, what I'd like you guys to do, go ahead, and if you've got a Bible with you, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. That's where we're going to be at today. Um, and uh, we're going to be in verses 1 through 23. Um, it's kind of a big chunk when we get there, so we'll, we'll read through it, and then we can kind of talk back on it. But what I would like to do is propose a question to you guys. Um, every Easter week you know even the media gets big into like who is jesus but did he really rise from the dead where's the tomb where was the tomb where did the crucifixion happen have any of you guys ever seen any of those documentaries on random shows and stuff like that or you know they want to get in on the hype of jesus which is really weird but that's another story for another day um but let's let's pretend that we are like i don't know 50 years from now 100 years from now time doesn't really matter but there's there's another archaeologist who's out and they're out to find the burial place of jesus and there's some new fancy technology, maybe there's new DNA resources that we found, or something like that. And this archaeologist pushes away a big stone, and inside of it, what does he find? But the remains of Jesus. And so whatever this new fancy technology is, he's able to prove that these bones that are sitting here inside of this tomb are the Jesus of, bones of Jesus of the Bible. I mean, that would kind of rock our world. So what I want to ask you guys, if that came out, we were able to undoubtedly through whatever technology, whatever it is, through whatever historical um, information we find, that this is the decomposing body of Jesus of the Bible. How many of you guys would say, I still believe in Christianity, I'm not going to let that fall out of my hands? Right. That's my reaction too. Because what's not? We're not going to let the world tell us what to believe, right? But what does Paul tell us? And that's what I would like to kind of get in with you guys today, is that Paul would not raise his hand with us. It's very likely that we have this knee-jerk reaction, too, when it come, comes on. And um, um, it's, it's almost like 
we're not going to let the world tell us what to believe. I don't care what the world tells me, right? Like, I know what the Bible says. But Paul tells us otherwise. And so we have this knee-jerk reaction that's like, no, I'm still going to believe. I'm still going to believe. And that's cool. And that's great because it shows us that we're confident in our faith, that we do have true faith in believing. But we lose a little bit of that rational thought by doing that. And we lose the core of the gospel when we do that. Because what is the gospel? But it's a declaration of what God has done. It is not an invitation. Um, It is not a feel-good thing. It is a declaration that God came, he was born of a virgin, that he suffered on the cross, he was buried, why was he buried? Because he died. And then three days later, what did he do? He rose from the dead. Core tenet of the very basis of what you have to acknowledge, you know, at least mentally acknowledge, call yourself a Christian, historically speaking. So if we lose that, Paul actually tells us that we're to be pitied and everything, everything's a loss. So, um, so yeah, so let's, let's read, uh, if you guys have, uh, turn, turn to 15, uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, and we're just going to read through uh, just a little bit here. Actually, just a lot of it. It's 23 verses. Um, and, uh, and then we'll kind of break some of this down into what happens. What does it mean if, it did, if, if the resurrection did not happen? What does it mean to us and to the world if Jesus did not rise from the dead? So in uh, chapter 15, going into verse 1, Paul's writing to Corinth, and this cor- church has a ton of stuff going on with it. I mean, you notice most of Corinthians is Paul going, what are you doing? Stop. <laughs> um, and so this is one of those things that happened even back then in first century uh, uh, in Mediterranean area, they are battling with the reality that, man, the resurrection actually happened. And so there's actually people who claim the gospel and then are saying that the resurrection do- didn't happen. Um, so he says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and the Twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one encountered in vain, he appeared to us in the church. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called, an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresented God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, but if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For by a man came death, and by a man also comes the resurrection of the dead. 
Verizon, Adam, all that. So I'll say that we priced that Aldi data lab, that each of his own data, priced the first two, then as it's coming, those two down. So let's pray, stop for a moment to pray, and uh, then we'll move on to people. God, thank you for this morning. Um, thank you for a family being gathered together. Thank you for your word that you've provided for us so that we have something to to reference, to fall back on, no matter how the winds of emotion and time goes, um, that we know that we can trust you because you have proven yourself over and over, that you are true, that you are faithful, and that you're constant. Thank you for finding us in our sin, and that even though we were dead in them, that you reached out to us and you loved us first, God. I pray that we are found to be confident in you this morning. I pray that this gives us peace to believe in the resurrection today. And that the beauty of the resurrection is the beauty of the gospel as well, um, as it is is such an integral part of it. Without that, we don't have the gospel. Pray this out in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so yeah, so I think I think we'd be, some of us might be kind of surprised to say, like, I mean, there, I would say there's a good almost 50 percent of us that raised our hands when I asked that question. Would you still believe? Like, yeah, I would still believe. Um, and like I said, it's a good knee-jerk reaction because there's a lot of confidence in the faith. Um, and we're like, you know, we're not going to let the world tell us what to believe. I think that kind of, we get that because those guys don't believe. Of course, they're going to find Jesus sitting in a, in a tomb, you know, or I'm not going to listen to them because they don't believe. But why would I? Why would I listen to them? Um, the world can't convince me otherwise. But, and I think part of it too, especially in this day and age, when we see with this 24-hour news and all this sort of stuff, that we live in such a polarized society that we forget who the real enemy is. Is is the enemy the guy who is the archaeologist who's trying to find Jesus' body? He's not the enemy. No. I see a couple of you all shaking your heads. He's not the enemy. The people around us are not the enemy. But it's easy to make somebody else who, you know, believes differently than me, differently than me, you know, or thinks differently, make them the enemy. Because that's something kind of tangible. We can feel it. We can see it. You know, we can do something about that, that we can have a very tangible experience with. Uh, and, and, but those people are not our enemy. So don't knee-jerk react to those people who are trying to disprove your faith. Because then what kind of happens? We kind of, we, we lose our rational thought and we start going into like, you know, it almost becomes personal at that point, right? I mean, because it's core to us. Like, like who we are as people is who we are in the story of God. That is what we believe. That's what we preach week in and week out here. And so if somebody comes in and attacks that, they are attack- we feel like they are attacking us personally at the core of who we are. And so our response is kind of important on how we do that. Uh, because as, as Scott said last week, like, it's okay, it's okay to love non-believers, and it's okay to disagree with them, and it's okay to love them enough to tell them the truth. But how do we do that? Love, patience, you know, um, and the way that we interact with them. It's going to speak volumes into the way that God has changed us through Jesus. And I'm a, we're going to talk about a lot of rational stuff today, I think. But um, rational stuff doesn't make people believe a lot of times. But what does make people believe is living life with you and around you and seeing the fruits of the gospel working out in, in your flesh and your life. And that happens because you've also been rational and thoughtful and thinking about those things. And then those people see it. So it's kind of this weird game of both. It's rational, it's experiential, it's, it's living in life together as a family and living life in community. Um, but it's, it's, not, it's, it's not easy, it's not, it's weird. I, I don't know how to say it exactly, but 
But yeah, so um, Paul tells us here that the resurrection is essential, and without it, we're to be saved. Not, not the other people, not the people who find the body of Jesus in this tomb 50 years from now and can prove that it's him. They're not the ones to be saved. We're the ones to be saved because we have declared the gospel. We have lived our life declaring an event that is true. And guess what? At this point, it's not. Holy cow, I mean, and then that just changed, and that changes everything. So I think there's five implications out of this that we can see that uh, that will show us what does it mean if the resurrection did not happen. So the first are in verses 12 and 13. Um, and there we're going to see that there is no hope for our own resurrection. Part of the faith is that not just that we're going to live this really good life right here and right now, that I'm going to rub this lamp and Jesus is going to come down and he's going to give me riches and I'm going to be happy, healthy, and wealthy for the rest of my life. How many of you guys have been happy, healthy, wealthy for your entire life? <laughs> you know, I guess maybe if we want to change the definition of happy, healthy, and wealthy, we could all say that. But I think if we're all really honest with ourselves, we would know that times just get hard. I think even, even wealthy people find that finances can be tough. Um, might be tough in a different way than it is for us who aren't that wealthy. <laughs> um, but, uh, and then we all know we all struggle with health. We all get older. Our bodies start declining, all that sort of stuff. Health, health issues are eventually going to get us. Even if we live completely healthy lives, we die like that, right? Then your health gets real bad real fast. <laughs> um, so eventually it's going to catch up with us. So here we see that Corinthians in this first century world they were kind of struggling, just like I think a lot of us or a lot of people around us do in a postmodern world, that a resurrection can't happen. I mean, think about it. How many people do you see in, like, the science world um, who would look at you when you say that Jesus rose from the dead? What do they know? That people stay dead, right? And we don't see that. It's not a normal occurrence. Um, and so there is that kind of struggle of, of did it happen or whatnot. But if they're saying that, if we're saying that the dead doesn't, the, the resurrection doesn't happen, then that means we ourselves will not be raised from the dead. And that is one of the hopes that we have when Jesus comes back is that he will raise us and we will have bodily life. We're not trying to escape our physical bodies and this physical reality here in this world. The good news is that Jesus came, died, and was buried and rose again, and that guess what? He's coming back. And it's not just coming back just to take revenge, right? It's coming back so that God can dwell with man here in the world that he created. And that is really good news. Um, so, and then going into verse 14, we find that our preaching and our faith is, in, is false and worthless. Um, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then every time a pastor preaches or you declare the gospel to yourself, to your spouse, to your friends, to your coworkers, you're, you're, you're declaring a false event. And the preaching and the work that you're doing is in vain because it didn't happen. And there's nothing for you to declare. There is nothing for you to tell people about because if Jesus didn't rise again, then it really doesn't matter that he died. We put a lot of emphasis on the death of Christ for good reason. <laughs> Hear me out on that. Like, it's not just a little event that happened, you know, or something like that. But if Christ, if Christ didn't rise again, then he hasn't defeated death. And I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here. But, like, the resurrection of Christ is just as important as the death. You cannot take... You cannot take the death of Christ away from the resurrection, and you cannot take the resurrection away from the death and still have the gospel of good news. So we are preaching a false, a false event, and then we have this faith in this event that supposedly happened but didn't, and so it is, our faith is worthless. Um, and, and, yeah, so, you know, 
if it's false and it's not a real thing, then our faith is useless, it's a fairy tale. And if something is unreal, it has no power, and it cannot bring people to God. And then in verse 15, we're going to see, too, um, that we are actually misrepresenting God. So here we are, we are declaring to people this fact about God, that he died, that Jesus died, three days later he was rose again. And if we are doing that, we are willfully misrepresenting God to the people around us. We are not loving our neighbor. We are not loving our, our congregation. Um, we are not loving the, the people that we work with. Um, we are actually telling them a lie. And so we find that, too, that, like, every time Scott and Nate get up here on a Sunday morning or the countless other pastors around the world get up and faithfully declare the gospel, that if they are doing that and the resurrection didn't happen, then they are willfully misrepresenting God to everybody who they come in contact with. We know that God is truth, right? It's another, probably another college uh, topic to get into. God is truth all the time. It is in his very nature of who he is. And, and if he is true and we lie about what he's done, then we have no hope in that. And we'll kind of follow that little, little tangent I had going on there. And it wasn't exactly what it is or not. But, um, but yeah, so it also means that Jesus was mis misrepresenting what the father would do after that he died as well. Because Jesus declared that, you know, you tear down this, this temple and I'll raise it in three days. He knew he was going to rise again. He told his disciples that he was going to rise again. And if Jesus said he was going to rise again and didn't rise again, well, that's some pretty big implications about Jesus and who he is. Because if Jesus lied, what is lie? Sin. If Jesus sinned, what does that, how does that affect his death? Well, now he's not a sinless sacrifice that's given up for us. What does that mean for us about our salvation? Is that no, nobody is atoned for our sin at that point. And then it also just basically means if we know that God is true and we know that Jesus lied about rising again, then we know that Jesus is not God. And that's a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big deal because we, needed, we need Jesus to be God to rise again. We need him to be perfect to die for us and pay the pr price for us because we can't do that. And if Jesus lied to us and he is not God, then, oh my gosh, all of our theology is completely wrong. So it is vital that Jesus rose again, if nothing else, because he said he would. And if he misrepresents who God is by telling people that he was going to rise again and he didn't, then he can't be God. Um, but yeah, so going into verse 16 and 17, if Jesus went to the cross to pay the price for your and my sin, he suffered, he died but he did not rise again, then we are still in our sin. Death and sin were not defeated, but Jesus did not rise again. The very fact of his resurrection is what shows us the power that he has, who he is, and, that, and what God has done. And if he has not defeated sin and he has not defeated death, then we are lost and we are dead in our sin. And all that hope that we had for of this story, this great story of God reconciling us to himself is gone. So, um, and then we're not atoned for. Like it just, there's so much to it. I guess I want, I want to talk. I could sit and talk with it. I read a bunch of stuff. I read. Did you guys ever have? I mean, Michael Horton has a really great uh, uh, article on the resurrection and what it is. It's kind of deep. I, I love Michael Horton because he he's very big on the fact of we we believe and Keller is too. We believe a historical and reasonable faith. Historical things that happened and that we use rationally thought 
to actually believe what we believe. It's not blind faith. Blind faith is not what Jesus calls us to. Faith in some ethereal, hopefully good, feeling, warm, butterfly feeling in our stomach is not what God has called us to. God has called us to truth. And if it's truth, then it's rational, at least in this postmodern world. There's a lot of things that are happen that, that may not happen with normal rational. We might talk about that a little bit too. But <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's, listen, yeah, we are still in our sin. We are still lost forever at this point. There is no hope for us. There is no eternal hope at this point. So, and then finally we see in verses 18 and 19, Paul goes on to say that all the believers who have fallen asleep, who have died, they're lost forever. If there is no resurrection of the sin, uh, or resurrection uh, of the body after death, then everybody we love, our, like my father who passed away, um, and then all of our other family members, our friends, coworkers, again, all this sort of stuff, our spouses who may have passed away. If there is no resurrection of the body, they are lost forever. And that, there's no hope in that. That means that all of our hope might be like here and now. And then what is that really? It really doesn't make it. That doesn't help us out. So if Christ has not been raised, we who are proclaiming his resurrection are pretty hopeless. Um, but why should we believe in the resurrection other than the fact that the Bible declares it? Um, is there really any proof? Uh, what are some arguments that happen? It's, there's a lot that could really go on to it. But what I want to kind of get down to is that you have to do business with the, to- the fact that the tomb is empty. You have to do something with the empty tomb. Because we know for a fact that the tomb was empty. There's a lot of th- things that go on. There's a lot of, like, I still don't believe the resurrection. And today's discussion is really not going to probably help with people who kind of just go, I'm not going to believe that. But we know that the tomb was empty. And this is kind of a weird thing to think about because sometimes I think, too, that the, the, the resurrection, because it is so surreal, so different from the ordinary, I think it almost becomes in our minds as, as a culture of almost a fable or a legend that Jesus rose from the dead. Because if you think about it, too, like a lot of our gospel presentations go heavily on the fact that Jesus died. Jesus died for our sins. And then, you know, there's movies like The Passion of the Christ. There's all kinds of stuff that talk about the pain and suffering that Jesus did. And then it's like, and he rose again. Awesome. And we move on. So when we lose the fact that the resurrection is a real, rational, actual, historical thing, it, it, it loses some of its power in that. So we need to at least go deal with the fact that the tomb is empty before we kind of even move into the resurrection. Because the tomb was empty, and we know that. Historically, we know that. That is a, just as the same as that we know that, you know, Hitler was around, and that we know that Napoleon, you know, battled through all of Europe, and that we know the Ming Dynasty happened, and the Egyptians, and all this sort of stuff. Now, we don't have firsthand account like we do today with phones and video cameras and stuff like that, so we have to deal with the fact that we have people who are giving us historical accounts and documents. Paul's doing this in the first part of the, the chapter. He says, Jesus appeared to these people. They were, most of them are still alive. And he's not saying that just to say that. He's saying that because it's been documented so that you can go talk to those people and hear their accounts of what Jesus has done. And that, I think that kind of changes the thoughts of what we have and what we do with the resurrection when we think about it being a historical event as opposed to a Bible story. Casey's heard me say this before. I kind of like, don't like the, the terms Bible stories and Bible characters. Because where do stories and characters come from? Fictional accounts. You know? I think we have kind of a, 
you know, the difference between connotation and denotation. Den denotation is the actual like dictionary like uh, reference for it, and connotation is kind of like the implied things that go along with it. Um, and so I think there's some connotation that happens when you call them Bible characters. It kind of takes away from this historical event of who these people were, King David, you know, like who we have this Bible story of him defeating Goliath and who's the character in it. And Goliath is a character. And when there's characters, it, it, I think there's a little bit that kind of just kind of, it's not like you, you rationally go, oh, it's a character, so I don't, you know, I don't think it's real, but it's just, just this little connotation in your head of how, it pro how you process it. And I want to be really story because really careful because we talk about the story of God. And so obviously the story of God is not false, because I probably can see Scott squirming back there as I talk about stories. <laughs> um, and, and so stories are not necessarily wrong and false. But when we start changing them into characters and coloring book pages and things like that, we almost make it these like separate events that happen throughout of it. And if we don't connect it all together, then it doesn't give us any real experience and timeline of what's actually going on and the actual historic reality of these events that we color pages of that we decorate our kids in Noah's Ark when God condemned the whole world to die so that we can we put it in a new book. So, so that's my story. Um, so we have to do business again that the tomb is empty. This is a historic fact. And some of the things that we can use on these items that, that to realize that this actually happened are a couple different things. They're all clues. They're all stuff that we put together, and it's the way that you know history kind of worked in its time. Um, first, the fact, and I think Scott mentioned this last week as well, or maybe it was just I was reading a bunch on it, but who were the first people to declare that Jesus rose from the dead? Anybody know? Any women? Mary? Yeah. Martha and Mary? Yeah. Yep. It was women. Now, to us in this day and age, no big deal, right? That's normal. So they're the first person who saw it. So they're the first person to, to claim it. But in this time frame, we could have 100 women who could have gone out there and have seen the empty tomb and then come back and declared it. And they could have had one man who went out and saw it and said, no, it's not empty. There's in there. And their entire testimony of all 100 women could have been just thrown away. It's impressive how Christianity actually uplifts women even though the world wouldn't say that today. But that's another topic again. Um, the tomb was actually so verified that it was empty. It was that the Jews themselves, who were anti-Christianity and re rebelling against Christianity so much that they actually had to claim that the tomb was empty. So we have a hostile witness who says, well, the disciples went and stole his body. So the Jews knew, the people of that time knew that that tomb was empty, that there wasn't a body in there. Now, what might have happened afterwards, you know, they're going to fight and argue about that. We're going to claim that Jesus rose from the dead, and that's why we still can't find a body today. But even the Jews who were hostile against Christianity had to admit that the tomb was empty. Um, the Gospel of Mark was written really early. I'm pretty sure that in a lot of it we could read that the Gospel was actually written so early that he just refers to the high priest. He doesn't refer to the high priest by his name. And why would you not need to refer to the high priest by name? We refer, well, we do refer to President Biden as President Biden, but in, if you're reading the front page of the newspaper today and it says the president declares X, Y, and Z happened or whatever, which president are they talking about? Right now we're talking about Biden, right? We don't need to put Biden's name in, at the end of president. We can do that. But Mark actually talks about the high priest, and he's doing that because he's writing this letter to people right here and right now who still have high, the high priest. And so they would know that if he had written it after the fact, he would actually need to reference who the high priest was. Because um, he 
left office and <laughs> abdicated his position, whatever you want to call it, in like 37 uh, AD. So it was relatively close to the death and resurrection of Jesus when it happened. Um, Mark's account was also simple. There's a lot of talk about it being like, oh, this is some legendary event that was added to afterward, you know, after decades after Christ died. Um, to it. But Mark's account was simple. And it was early. And so if it's simple, there's no legendary add-ons. It's not like the cross came busting out of the cave and was like, Jesus is gone, you know, and, and uh, something like that. I mean, think about it back in these times. Like they would have, if we're trying to make it some legend, something big, would it just kind of be like the stone was rolled away and the, and, the, and the guards were asleep? Like they didn't even say that. Like Jesus kept busted out and beat up the guards. Like the guards were just asleep, you know. Um, no big legendary event. If it had happened afterwards, we would have had all this time of like, you know, people adding to the story and making it some large legendary event. Um, Joseph, of, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, yeah, um, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was a very big like, political body at that time. He was very well known. And so to add him into the story, if it had been an add-on, like that would have been an easy, easy thing to go, hey, he was not there. Uh, that did not happen. You know, um, so we have all of these things like that. And, and actually, the last one I found actually really, really prominent. I'd never put it together before. Um, the resurrection. Anybody know where the resurrection was first preached, like largely? Where, where did the disciples go? They went back to Jerusalem and into Jerusalem. And it was there that they preached of the resurrection of Jesus. And if the tomb wasn't empty and they're there in Jerusalem where Jesus died and was buried, what do you think would happen to those people who heard this crazy story of some guy being resurrected from the dead? Somebody would walk out into the tomb and go, hey, look, there's that body. He's not, he's not alive. He's dead. He's right there. So for the fact that they didn't go wandering off to some, like, random, you know, podunk little place in, like, southern Israel or moving to another country or something like that, and that they proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus right then and right there where Jesus died and where he rose again, it's a pretty big clue that the tomb was at least empty. So we have to do business, and you have to be intellectually honest with yourself that the tomb was empty. Um, so, sorry, I've been talking a lot, and there's a lot going through. So, but I want to talk about like four the four main comments that I kind of find. So we move that. So the tomb is empty. We know that. So, what happened? Why do people typically argue that the resurrection didn't happen? Um, so there's like four main arguments that I would say that we have um, that go along with that. So one of those big ones is my favorite one is that vivid lifelike hallucinations by the apostles, by the, uh, all of the disciples. And I find this one just kind of like totally random. I don't know why. It basically says that they wanted Jesus to be alive so bad. All 500 people had a hallucination at the same time and had the same thing happen in the hallucination. Have you ever been around anybody, like multiple people who, that's kind of just kind of a weird thing to talk about up here. Have been around any people who do drugs and they hallucinate? <laughs> they all kind of have their own individual experience. Ask Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> um, hallucinations don't work that way. Hallucinations don't happen on a massive scale. That's just not typically the way that it goes down. They all had it, all 500 of them at the same time and for days, for like 40 days. All these different people had them at different times and all saw the same person. So I, I don't really feel like this one takes a whole lot of explaining. Like, that just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make rational sense as we're trying to talk about that. 
Um, another one of my favorites, too, is that Je- Jesus was not actually dead, but he was in a coma when he replaced him. And that he was in such a state that he, uh, you know, he looked dead and appeared as a dead. There's a couple things with this one. Um, Jesus has got me flogged. He got his beard ripped out of his face. He'd been beaten. He had to carry his cross, however many miles it was, from uh, to, to Golgotha. Um, and he was crucified for hours. And then they took a big spear and they stuck it in his side and they speared him through there. And all this fluid came gushing out. And then they had to take him off the cross. I mean, even just getting nailed to the cross and getting taken off makes me want to pass out just thinking about it. Um, And then they carried him to however far it was that this tomb was, and they put him in there. And then three days later, without any medical condition, by just having a good rest, Jesus, who had been flogged and beaten and bloodied and scarred and beyond recognition, was able to push away a giant stone by himself. And then he was able to beat up a couple professional Roman guards. And he was able to walk around town for 40 days. I mean, I could see maybe he wasn't dead in three days if you want to get into it. Like, maybe they didn't do good enough. But, I mean, the Romans were good at a lot of things. And the main thing that they were good at was war and death. So if they have a bunch of Romans there who were crucifying him and trying to kill him to not know if he was dead or not, that does, even that alone to me just doesn't fly. They were good at that. These men were professional executioners. They knew that Jesus was dead. His, his heart had stopped. And he started decaying for three days. And then he rose again. Um. Yeah, that one doesn't make any sense. This one, now the next one is that the disciples saw a ghost. That just kind of gives you a little bit more thought was put into this one. Because, hey, that makes sense. Like, you know, he walked through a couple doors and a couple buildings, that, you know, walls that were locked and all this sort of stuff. So obviously he's a ghost because he's immaterial. But going on to this one, too, like, they touched him. They, like, checked out his wounds on, that, were on, that were on him. And then, too, like, just in a, in a thought of what they would call it, it at this time, I mean, even this, to this day now, like, if, if you were to talk to somebody who believes in ghosts, and they would say, you know, my dad died six weeks ago, and I saw him again, would they call that a resurrection? They're not even talking Christianity at this point. Let's just, just the world in general. Would they call that a resurrection? No, they call him a ghost. He's dead. So, for the disciples to turn around and call it a resurrection, when it was a ghost that they saw, that they flew through, maybe? I don't know. Um, that just doesn't make any sense either. There were physical things that happened, um, all that sort of stuff. And, um, and uh, as even as Nate's best friend, N.T. Wright, he, was, uh, he had studied the, um, the early Judaism pretty extensively. And if you were to go to any typical Jewish person at that point in time and you were to say, what would you call it if somebody died but their spirit lived on, their body left? They wouldn't call it resurrection. What would they call it? Death. That's what they would call it. I mean, even think of today. Zombies, which didn't come around until like the 1900s. We don't call that a resurrection. What do we call it? The undead. Like, so there's a very distinct thing about calling it a resurrection. Um, And then finally they made it up. And this is a really big one. Because I think this one probably has the most rational adherence to it or whatever that you want to call it. Um, and there's kind of two stories here. One, we have the legend that was added on, you know, years and years later, that the disciples and all of the followers of Jesus basically created this legend that Jesus rose from the dead and that the early disciples did not believe that. And I think we have a lot of evidence from the Gospels and from Acts of where these people were declaring the resurrection of Jesus from the get-go. Even going back into the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes, I declare the gospel to you that I received. And the language that he used when he talks about Jesus dying 
being buried and three days later being rose again according to the scriptures wasn't usual language that Paul would use when he was writing letters. And it kind of gives us evidence that the early church was already using this as a gospel tract, basically, as a Roman's road, that Jesus died, he was buried. Why, did, why was he buried? Because he died, and that he rose again. Um, so we find that, and then going back into the whole, you know, Mark was written really early. Um, we find the declaration, you know, the, that being in there, uh, the referencing the high priest at the time instead of referencing him by name. Um, but two is that the disciples lied and made this up. And, I mean, to me, as a guy who likes to think that I think somewhat rationally most of the time, I find that I think this one kind of has, in my head at least, has the most, like, bite to it. The disciples made it up. And that, I think this is one of those things that scares me the most when I think about Christianity and the faith that here's these people 2,000 years ago, and they just made some stuff up, and now I believe it 2,000 later. So why? You know? And, and that scares me. But some big things that happened in, in this time frame, you look at, at – Paul, when he went back in, uh, was it Acts, uh, I think 25, 26, he's talking with the Greeks, um, and they stumbled with the resurrection as well. Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and the believers in the church are declaring there's no resurrection. And if you went to a first century Jewish person, there's kind of two, thought, two thoughts. They had some who didn't believe in any resurrection at all. And then they had others who, like, the only form of resurrection that would happen would be kind of at the end times when God's kingdom was here and declared and he crushed everything else. And it was a, we are resurrected. There was no idea of an individual resurrection to happen. Um, and so Jesus being an individual who was resurrected was just so far outside of the mindset of people that it wasn't a normal thing that somebody would think up. Typically speaking, I know sometimes we think up some crazy stuff, you know, on the fly. And we're like, how did somebody even think about that? Like, you know, and, but, um, but here are these men. And then too, like, here are these men who, who followed Jesus for years. He goes to be crucified, which he, he told them it was going to happen, right? Like, I mean, that's kind of, I guess it's, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty sort of thing. It's, it's easy. We see it now reading the gospel. Jesus saying, I lo- it's going to happen. I'm going to be crucified all throughout it. And then Jesus gets crucified. And what do, the, what do the disciples do? They actually run. They beat it. They're like, what the heck? This is not the guy that we thought we were. Why? Because they were looking for someone to come and crush the Romans and establish Israel as a kingdom again. Um, so these guys suddenly make it all up. And then what happens to all of the disciples? Does anybody, like, know any of that other church history? Like, what happened to, the, to almost all of the disciples? They were all martyred. Like, and people will, die, people will die for a lie. But it's a lie that they believe in, that they don't believe is fake. So if the disciples made it up, that means that they died for a lie that they, they knew was false. And they didn't just die. It wasn't like a quick, like, have your head cut off and you were done. Like, these guys were, like, tortured. So I find that kind of hard to believe that these men who would make something up this big would die for something so hard and live in such horrible conditions for a lie. Because what does it really gain anybody? But their lives are changed in such a dramatic way that there's only one solution in my book. The only solution in my book through these basic uh, uh, things is that these men saw Jesus. They saw him die. I mean, they ran from him. They betrayed him. They left him. They denied him. Peter denied him three times through the night. Thomas wouldn't believe that it was Jesus without touching him. And they, saw, they finally, they saw Jesus in person. They touched his wounds. They believed that it was him, and they watched him rise, you know, ascend. And then their lives were drastically changed, and the church was born, and the world was, I mean, honestly, the world was changed forever by this. 
and in, in more than just like if you believe or don't believe, like I think that there, you know, the early church, man, like they took care of people um, who, you know, who were dying, who other people wouldn't help. I mean, there's just all kinds of crazy stories about how the church has actually advanced science. Um, obviously, it did other things as well to people who didn't believe new stuff in science, but um, a lot of crazy, really things happen with that. So let's go back into Corinthians. So if if the re- we talked about what ha- would happen if the resurrection didn't happen, but let's flip that. What happens if the resurrection did happen based on this section of verse? We can flip those those five things around. We, can, we know that there is hope for us to be raised from the dead. We know that this is not just a here and now thing. This is not just come to a Sunday morning, get my warm and fuzzy feeling, and healthy, make better decisions, and I'm happy, healthy, and wealthy. We know that this is for something bigger than that. We know that this is an adoption into a family, and that this is us preparing the world for God to come here and dwell with us. And we know that we have hope after death. Um, our preaching and our faith are not faith, are not false and pointless. We don't misrepresent God. So we, we accurately, um, our, our preaching, Scott and Nate's preaching every Sunday is not only true, but it is powerful. It has lots of power. And after that, then we know, too, that we are accurately representing God. We are declaring the truth of who God is and what he has done. And we also know that Jesus told us the truth as well. It affirms our belief that Jesus is who he says he was and is. Um, our sins have been forgiven, and we have been declared righteous. The biggest thing is this is point number four. Our sins have been forgiven. We are righteous. God sees the, the, the goodness of Jesus in us, and we have been adopted into this family. Because it's not just a you and me, you know, me believing sort of thing. This is a family ordeal. We are adopted into a family, and we are part. We, you know, Jesus is the first fruits of that, that family. He is the first one to rise again, and he promises us that it will happen. And the good, also the good news is, too, for our friends and family who've passed away, who've fallen asleep, they're not lost forever. We have hope they will rise again when Jesus calls them. Um, so, I, you know, I'm not sure how much thought and process you guys have given to the resurrection before this. Uh, I'm sorry you had to listen to me, like, wimble on about all kinds of nerdy stuff and, and, and things like that. And this isn't one of those like deep, like inspiring sort of things, but the, but the cross is real. And so many of us believe that the cross is real, but do we really do business with an empty tomb? And do we really do business about Jesus rising from the dead as a historical real event? Because if we do that and we acknowledge it, then that gives us such a firm foundation for the rest of our belief system. Because it's not just the system that we believe. But it's the, again, it comes down to the declaration of the great things that God has done and that we can, we can wrestle and struggle with these other things and we can go, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief because I know I believe in this and this is the foundation of it. It all stems from here. So that allows for the throes of all of our emotion and all of that to happen, these dark days when we're like, is Christianity real? Is Jesus who he says he is? Am I crazy for following this? I mean, I remember having these conversations with my old boss at Southside and he is very much an atheist very much kind of a rational thinker kind of guy. And he just, I remember having my headphones in we were, or uh, open before, and he was talking with people, doing his little hoo morning. And he was trying to be, not be disrespectful, and he looks over, sees that I have headphones in, and because he's talking about, like, um, you know, smart people and all that sort of stuff. And he's like, that is the smartest way ever to believe in an imaginary guy in the sky. That's because I don't believe in an imaginary guy in the sky. I believe in a God who created this earth, who has given us a story historical events for us to trust in 
He's given us real evidence, real people who've seen things that we can go back and verify. And that's how I know that God is good. Because he's proven it time and time again. So some of you guys need to do business with the empty tomb today. Some of you guys, it's, it's reaffirming for you. And then some of you guys need to do some real serious business with the resurrection. Is, is this real? Some of you guys just need to decide it. Today's the day. Today's the day that I'm going to follow Jesus. The resurrection happened. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again. And my prayer for you guys is that today is a day that you remember that will be like, I've decided to follow Jesus. Gosh, you get up here and sing 15 verses of an empty grave and you don't know what they're going to say. I don't know if you guys ever been in a church like that, like what I grew up in. Like me being like 18 years old, just going, oh, they're going to do one more verse. And then sure enough, the pastor's like, oh, I just did it. I'm not going to do it. And then we sing 16 more verses of it. And finally, one guy's like, okay, I, I, I'm giving in. I'm coming up for it so we can stop this, you know. But you guys need to do business. The gospel is real. God has called you to believe, and he's called you to repent. Turn away from your sins and believe the gospel. And today's the day for you to do that. So pray with me, church. Father, I thank you for the, the, the resurrection. Thank you that you have done what you promised us that you were going to do, that you have sacrificed so much. You gave us your son. He came here, and we did nothing but kill him, nothing but find him unworthy, and he was worthy of far more than we could ever even imagine, far more than we could ever give. God, I pray for those today who are finding hopefully some hope in the resurrection of it being a real thing and what it means for them. I hope that there's somebody here today who's decided to follow you for the first time, God. Um, that they're realizing that Christianity has real rational thought and that they do take hope in it. That they can make that assent that you are who you say you are and that you promised us so much and that you've called them to be part of the kingdom of God. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.